Ever had your heart broken? Rebellious teenager, child, the trail of a friend or a loved one or a broken relationship? The grief is deep. It's lasting, isn't it? Genesis 6 says, And the Lord regretted that he had made man on the earth, and it grieved him to his heart. So the Lord said, I will blot out man, man who I have created from the face of the land, man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heavens, for I'm sorry that I have made them. Now, the character of God did not change in Genesis 6. He was and he still is a God of grace, a God of mercy, a God of patience, a God of love. Remember that Enoch of the line of Seth had warned people for many, many years. He was a preacher of righteousness. We saw last week that God declared that he would give man 120 years. Not 120 years of life, but man who was alive at the time of the flood had 120 years to turn and, and to repent. So he had great patience. And it, it grieved God to bring judgment on man, to flood the earth, and to, to blot out man. It, it broke his heart. But we read that mankind had become so wicked that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And because man had become so evil, God had to change the direction of his providence or, or the way that he directs the affairs of the universe. But God did not change. He's unchanging. And his unchanging holiness and his unchanging justice required that he judge man's sin, but that still grieves him. 2 Peter 3, 9 says that he's not willing for any to perish. He wants all to come to repentance. And let's, let's remember another facet of his immutable character, and that's his patience and his forgiveness. God gives plenty of time and plenty of opportunity for man to repent. And for those who repent, he forgives them. He cleanses them of their sin. And Psalm 103.12 says he remembers their sin no more. You know, if God were not a patient and forgiving God, we, we look at the destruction that happened in the flood and think, wow, that is, that's really harsh. But if God were not a patient and forgiving God, no one would have survived the flood. We wouldn't be here today. But in chapter 6 and verse 8, it says, Noah found favor in the eyes of God. Now, Noah, just like every man, was a sinner. Noah inherited a sin nature from Adam. And just like Adam and just like every man since Adam, Noah has lived under that curse. But Noah chose to obey God. Noah was a sinner, but he wasn't living in rebellion against God. And God looking and, and seeing and knowing Noah's heart, knowing he was following the Lord rather than the wicked culture, God showed favor. He gave Noah favor, gave him grace. And I've been thinking over the last couple of weeks as we've looked at the wickedness that God was going to judge, we probably need to make a distinction between sin and wickedness. First of all, to be very clear, there is no doubt that every one of us is wicked. Every one of us. 
None of us in and of ourselves has anything good in us because of our human nature, because we are sinful by nature. Our sin, all of it, every sin that we commit is wicked. But what of the person, what of the one who repents of his wickedness? He recognizes his sin. He knows his sin is rebellion against God. He knows he's separated from God. He knows he's without relationship both now and eternally. What about that one who comes to that recognition and he knows he has no home apart from Christ or no hope apart from Christ's sacrifice on his behalf? And so he confesses he's a sinner. And he receives forgiveness. He receives Christ as Savior, and he repents by making Christ Lord of his life. What about that one? The word repent means to turn. And and the Bible says the one who truly turns to Christ, turns his life away from sin and self, and turns toward Christ as Lord, is forgiven. Is no longer wicked. Now, now, to be clear, you can't just ask for forgiveness and go on living however you want to live. Repentance and forgiveness are two sides of the same coin. The one who repents is truly forgiven. The one who is truly forgiven repents. So, Does a forgiven sinner then live perfectly? No, he still has a sin nature. Every one of us is still going to struggle with sin. The the difference is we can't, if we truly belong to Christ, we can't keep on sinning. We won't enjoy sin. The Spirit of God who, who lives in us will convict us and draw us to repentance. And as we practice, as believers, as we practice regular confession and repentance, we become more and more like Christ. And guess what? We struggle less and less with sin. No, we'll we'll never be perfect this side of heaven. But we can become more and more like Christ. Well, in Genesis 6 last week, we saw a pretty good definition of wickedness. Let me remind you, it's in the fifth verse. Every intention of the thoughts of man's heart was only evil continually. That's describing a wicked person, not a person who belongs to Christ. And here's my point. Before you come to Christ, you, before you came to Christ, you were a wicked person. Everything you thought about, everything you did was evil in the eyes of God, no matter how good it might have looked in the eyes of men. Apart from Christ, everything you did was evil. But when you came to Christ, when you truly surrendered your life to the Lordship of Christ, although you still have a sin nature that sometimes you may act on, God sees you in the righteousness of Christ. You're still a sinner, but by grace, you've been saved from your wickedness. And why am I trying to make this distinction very clear? Because God is going to judge wickedness. God is going to judge sinners who refuse to repent. And that includes people who try to be good enough. People who are too prideful to admit their need for Christ. 
You can be a good person in the eyes of man and still be wicked in the eyes of God. You can go to church. You can read the Bible. You can pray for your family and still be wicked. In fact, I'll tell you this. If you're a really good imposter, you could even hold a position of leadership or or service in the church and still be wicked in the eyes of God. Sinners who have confessed and repented, they've turned control of their life from from self and pleasing self to pleasing God. Those who have truly repented are not going to suffer judgment. Listen to Jesus' words in John 3, verse 18. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. John 5, verse 24, truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but is passed from death to life. Listen, I don't know if you're listening or not. I I say it often, but I don't think I I can say it enough. If you're not trusting in the redemptive work of Jesus alone, if you're not living under the lordship of Christ, you are not any less wicked than those who lived before the flood. And I want to say, if that's you, if you're a person who's not surrendered your life to Christ and you're not living with him as Lord, you're not hearing my words right now tugging at your heart. You're hearing the word of God calling you to repentance because if you don't repent, you will be destroyed. People in Noah's time had 120 years. Uh, That wasn't guaranteed. Some died before the flood occurred. That was God's warning. And they had 120 years, still didn't repent. No one has 120 years today. There's no way to know how long a person has on this earth. But when his or her time is up, there's no other opportunity. There's no second chance. You you cannot change your eternal destiny once your life on earth is ended. There's no other chance. Jesus was very clear about the next big event after death. In John 5, 28, he said, Do not marvel at this, for an hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and come out. Those who have done good to the resurrection of life, those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. What is he saying? Everyone is going to be raised. Everyone is going to exist for eternity. It's not a thing of those who are wicked, those who are separated from God when they die, that's it. No, Jesus is saying a time is coming when everyone will be raised. Some will be raised to eternal death and suffering. And some will be raised to eternal life with Christ. And let me just be clear what he meant when he said those who have done good will be resurrected to life. Doing good does not refer to the good things um, or the good works you and I do on this earth. It's not what he's talking about. Good people are not given the gift of eternal life because no one is good except Jesus. The good that Jesus is referring to in this passage is receiving the sacrifice that he made for your sin and obeying him and abiding in him. You see, if you truly belong to Christ, his lordship is going to be evident. Your life will be lived differently. You will be, as Scripture says, walking in the light. Now, why why am I 
speaking to a church crowd and, and belaboring the point that anyone apart from Christ is wicked and headed for judgment. Why, why am I doing that this morning? Well, first of all, I fear for all the good churched people who have not surrendered to Christ. You're fooling yourself if you think you're a good enough person. And you're being deceived and you're deceiving yourself if you're looking at the wicked people in Genesis, if you're looking at people today that we would describe as wicked and you're saying to yourself, well, that's not me. Because the Bible says if Christ is not Lord of your life, if you don't obey him and, and do what he says, you don't belong to him. And you are therefore wicked no matter how much good you do. The other reason I would belabor this point to the church crowd is that if you're a true Christ follower and if, you're, if you have surrendered to the lordship of Christ, I want you to be disturbed about the condition of the good people around you, about the judgment that's coming and the destiny that they face. You see, we all have neighbors or coworkers or friends or family members who are good people and we assume because they're good, they must know Christ. Otherwise, they wouldn't be a good person, Right? Well, have you asked? Have you asked them if they know Christ? Well, no, I, I don't want to offend them. Listen, if, if someone knows Christ and you ask them, they're not going to be offended. One of two things will happen. Either they'll recognize they're not living very well for Christ, it's not evident in their life, and, and they'll repent. Or if you ask them if they know Christ, they ought to be overjoyed to talk to you about Christ and what he's done for them. On the other hand, if you ask a good person if they know Christ and they don't, they might be offended by you asking, but remember, if they don't know Christ, they're headed to an eternity in a very real place called hell where they will suffer for all of eternity. It will never end. And listen, let me say to you what I used to say to teenagers about sharing their faith and being worried about offending a friend. You can't offend someone into hell number two. Okay? They're already destined for judgment and hell, and if you offend them, if they get mad, they don't speak to you, at least maybe they'll think about their condition and their relationship with Christ. That's the introduction. Chapter 7 this morning. Let me ask you to turn there because I won't be able to read the entire chapter, so I want you to see the verses as we cover them. And, and let me stop and say, I wasn't making light of what I've just said. I'm dead serious. I'm, I'm incredibly burdened and concerned about church people, good people who don't know Christ. And I will never stop speaking to that. Well, as you're turning this morning, let me just give you some quick reminders about the description of the ark in chapter 6, it was made of gopher wood. We don't know what gopher wood is. That wood may still be on our earth at this point. We don't know. Uh, I will say this. God was very particular in, in telling Moses to build the ark of gopher wood. And God is always very particular with us. And there are reasons for that. We have to trust him in that. The ark was 300 cubits. That's about 450 feet by 50 cubits, 75 feet, 30 cubits, 45 feet tall. It had rooms. Um, it had three decks. Uh, all total, the ark was about 100,000 square feet, 1.5 million cubic feet. 
Creation scientists estimate there were probably about 1,400 kinds on the ark, about 7,000 animals all total, of course, of all different sizes. We saw that in the ark there was one door, and we'll get to it in a moment, but that door had a significance beyond loading the animals. The ark was covered in pitch. Pitch is a, a resin or a waterproofing. Interestingly, the word pitch there in Genesis is a derivative of the same word as atonement, which is a covering for our sin. The pitch on the ark kept out the waters of judgment. The blood of Jesus, which is our uh, atonement, covers our sin to keep us from judgment. We'll look at chapter 7, verse 1. It says, Then the Lord said to Noah, Go into the ark, you and all your household, for I've seen that you are righteous before me in this generation. Well, Noah's faith is about to be rewarded. It's about to, the, the faith is about to come to fruition. For 120 years, he is believed. For 120 years, he has warned that God was going to destroy the earth. Can you imagine the ridicule and the hardship he went through for 120 years? Let that be an encouragement to you if you're worried about ridicule for sharing your faith. For 120 years, Noah was a preacher of righteousness, and for at least 75 to 80 years, Noah and his sons had been building a boat where there was no water. They'd been building a boat in a time when you couldn't use the word rain. There had never been a drop of rain. No one knew what that was. But now it's time to get on board. And the Hebrew word that's translated here, go, means to enter in or to come in. Is it a command to, to Noah? Yes, but at the same time, it's an invitation. God is inviting Noah and his family into the ark, and it's a picture of the invitation to salvation. God invites people to, to come in or to enter. We said a moment ago there was one door into the ark. That door, like the rest of the ark, was covered with pitch to keep the waters of judgment out. It's symbolic of Jesus. Jesus is the, the one door through whom we enter into salvation as his blood covers us to atone for our sins so that we escape judgment. More than 60 times in the New Testament as believers, we're referred to as being in Christ. Noah was in the ark just as we are in Christ. You know, Noah may have, I don't know how, um, with the design of the ark, I don't know how stable it was. There may have been times that Noah slipped and fell in the ark, but he never fell out of the ark. Look down at verse 16 and you'll see why. Noah didn't close the door. Noah didn't latch the door. It wasn't dependent on Noah latching the door of that ark. Verse 16 says, and the Lord God shut him in. If you are truly in Christ, you cannot fall out. You're secure in Christ. Chapter 6, we saw that Noah was to take one pair of each kind, a male and female. But you see some new instruction here in chapter 7, verses 2 and 3. He should take seven pair of all the clean animals and seven pair of birds. Now, that was not for an extra snack in case they got hungry along the way. None of the animals on the ark were for eating. Why? Because man has not yet been given the instruction to eat meat. If you go back to where we started in creation in chapter 1, God said that the animals and man were to eat as vegetarians. So the clean animals 
Obviously, a pair was taken to reproduce after the flood, but the initial pairs were taken for sacrifice. When we get to chapter 8 next week, you'll see the first thing Noah did when he came out of the ark was to sacrifice. Now, the Mosaic law obviously has not yet been written, but we know that God instructed Adam and Eve regarding sacrifice because we see their sons making sacrifice in chapter 4. Let me tell you a couple of things about the sacrificial system that are important to understand. First of all, the sacrifices that were made all through the Old Testament did not take away the sin. The sacrifices simply delayed the judgment. The sacrifices symbolized faith in the ultimate sacrifice. Sacrifice pointed forward to the time when Jesus would come to make the final sacrifice to pay for the sins of all mankind, all those who placed their faith in him. But I want you to understand, too, the sacrifices also depicted what God wanted from his people. You see, a sacrifice was total commitment. When a sacrifice was made, the life of the animal was taken, and, and the blood of the animal was spilt. And that's a picture of what God wants from us. No, not physically that our lives would end, that our bloods would be spilt, but he wants a total commitment of our heart and our soul, a complete sacrifice to him. That's why Paul said in Romans 12, 1, to present your bodies a living sacrifice. God calls us to sacrifice ourselves completely to him. Noah took these seven pairs of clean animals and, and birds because the sacrificial system, the reminder of what God has done was going to require that. Now, let me say right here, because I don't know where else to put it, and let me give you a word on dinosaurs. I've been asked. Yes. God made them on day six. Dinosaurs did not exist for millions and millions of years before man came onto the scene. On day six, God made the dinosaurs. Well, why doesn't Scripture say that? First of all, there's no word for dinosaurs until 1841. That's when that word was coined. Secondly, if, if you look at the creation account, not every type of animal is mentioned there or anywhere in the Bible. But there were dinosaurs. They were on the ark. Um, don't, when you think of the really, really big dinosaurs, remember they only had to take two of every kind. It didn't have to be every single type of dinosaur. And likely on the ark, remember God sent the animals to Noah, likely they were juveniles. They were smaller, they ate less, they were more docile, and they would have more time to reproduce, more life in them after the flood was over. But they were on the ark, and they were alive with man after the flood. How do we know that? Well, the fossil record shows dinosaur bones that have been discovered that have bite marks, or if you would, battle wounds on the bones. So what does that tell us? Well, after the flood, God allowed man and animals to eat meat to become carnivores. So the fossil record would tell us that dinosaurs existed after the flood. Now, they became extinct like many species have due to human activity. Uh, climate was different after the flood, diseases. But yes, dinosaurs existed. Yes, they existed at the same time that man did, and they were on the earth after the flood. Chapter 7, verse 4. God's given Noah the instruction about the, uh, the clean uh, animals and birds he was to take. Then in verse 4 he says, For in seven days I will send rain on the earth, forty days and forty nights, and every living thing that I have 
made I will blot out from the face of the ground. Here's what I want you to see in verse 4. Seven days. Perhaps part of that was due to loading the animals that God sent. I doubt that took the entire seven days, but for seven days the door remained open. God had given 120 years of warning. Now there's a final seven days. God doesn't coerce anyone, but all are invited. Now think about that scene for just a minute, those, those last seven days. Have you ever noticed when a big storm is coming, if, if you have pets in, in your home, they get real nervous or their behavior is kind of unusual? Or maybe if you live in an area where there's a lot of wildlife or you're even walking uh, out in an area where there's wildlife when a big storm is coming, they, they behave very erratically. They, they scatter. Why? They sense that danger is coming. Now think about the people who lived around this area where Noah uh, built the ark. Imagine you live near Noah. For several days, you see animals moving toward the ark, 7,000 animals, in fact, moving toward the ark. You've heard the warnings. Don't you think you would wake up and realize, hey, something's up? And for seven days, that door remained open. Verse 5 tells us the same thing we saw at the end of chapter 6. Noah did all the Lord had commanded him. He wasn't a perfect person. He was a sinner, but he was following God. And you see in verse 6 through 10, it, it repeats what we know. Noah was 600, his sons, his wives, his sons' wives entered the ark. The, the pair of clean and unclean animals entered. And after seven days, the flood came. Now let's read beginning in verse 11. Read with me. In the 600th year of Noah's life, in the second month, on the 17th day of the month, on that day, all the fountains of the great deep burst forth, and the windows of heaven were opened, and the rain fell on the earth 40 days and 40 nights. On the very same day, Noah and his sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth, and Noah's wife, and the three wives of his sons with him entered the ark. They and every beast according to its kind, and all the livestock according to their kinds, and every creeping thing that creeps on the earth according to its kind, and every bird according to its kind, every winged creature. They went into the ark with Noah to and two of all flesh in which there was the breath of life. And those that entered, male and female, all flesh went in as God had commanded them, and the Lord shut them in. The flood continued for 40 days on the earth. The waters increased and bore up the ark, and it rose high above the earth. The waters prevailed and increased greatly on the earth, and the ark floated on the face of the waters. And the waters prevailed so mightily on the earth that all the high mountains under the whole heaven were covered. The waters prevailed above the mountains, covering them 15 cubits deep. And all flesh died that moved on the earth, birds, livestock, beasts, all swarming creatures that swarm on the earth and all mankind. Everything on the dry land in whose nostrils was the breath of life died. He blotted out every living thing that was on the face of the ground, man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heavens. They were blotted out from the earth. Only Noah was left and those who were with him in the ark, and the waters prevailed on the earth 150 days. Verse 11 said, the floods began, the flood begins, the fountains of the great deep burst forth, 
and the windows of heaven were open. Just when God said, and just as God said, the flood began. Not only did it rain hard, but from beneath the earth's crust, waters burst forth. And so this flood was not regional by any means. It was worldwide and catastrophic. The entire earth was covered. Verses 18 through 20 told us the waters prevailed, they increased greatly, they prevailed so mightily that the high mountains were covered, covering them up to 15 cubits deep. That's somewhere between 20 and 25 feet over the top of the mountains. Basically, God took his hand away and let nature rage against the earth. And except for the eight righteous people in the ark and the animals that God put on the ark in order to replenish the earth. Every other living creature was blotted out from the earth. And God is going to destroy the earth again. Colossians tells us that Jesus is the sustainer of creation. He holds it all together. That's the only reason we can live on this earth, and the earth doesn't just disintegrate and destroy itself. Jesus holds it all together. But when God decrees the next time that time is up, Jesus is going to let go. And catastrophic disaster is going to come on the earth, not by flood, but by fire. 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 10, Peter explains it to us. He says, the day of the Lord will come like a thief, and the heavens will pass away with a roar. The heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. Listen, God didn't go back on his word in Noah's day. He's not going to go back on his word here in the New Testament about the judgment to come. When God's patience runs out again, the door will be closed on salvation and judgment will come. Just as God closed the door on the ark, he will close it and it will never be opened again. There will be no more opportunity. Just as in Noah's day, everyone right now has opportunity to repent. There's still time. And those who have faith in him, those who repent, those who turn to him and make him Lord of life will be received. But after that opportunity to repent, he's going to destroy those who refuse to believe. So what do we do? What do believers do knowing what is to come? Back in 2 Peter chapter 3 and in verse 11. He says, since everything will be destroyed in this way, what kind of people ought you to be? You ought to live holy and godly lives. As you look forward to the day of God and speed its coming, that day will bring about the destruction of the heavens by fire, and the elements will melt in the heat. But, speaking to us as believers, in keeping with his promise, we're looking forward to a new heaven and a new earth, the home of righteousness. 
So then, dear friends, since you're looking forward to this, make every effort to be found spotless, blameless, and at peace with him.